Thank you, Fran. That was beautiful. Uh, hi, my name is Kendall Ray Rothis, and um, I have some really hard things to talk to you about today, which is uh, why I want to start by, well, warning you, first of all, that there is some violent and sexual content coming up. And I also want to give you permission if you need to get up and leave at any point. I mean, you always have that permission and it's a little easier to do on Zoom than in real life. But sometimes we forget we're allowed to do what we need to to take care of ourselves. Um, and then also I want to remind you um, that if you... If you choose to stay, uh, I hope you do, and listen and learn and be challenged, don't forget to breathe. When it's hard, breathe. When it's uncomfortable, breathe. When it's painful, breathe. And we'll get through this together, okay? My hope is that by talking about hard things in a safe setting like this one, we can help to make the world out there a safer place for more people. That's why I do this work. That's why I invite you to listen. I'm going to read to you now from Judges chapter 19. And just so you know ahead of time, I think it is the most violent, most graphic, and disturbing story in the whole Bible. So as I read, breathe. Here goes. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there for four months, her husband went to, to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. I'm going to skip down to verse 15. Basically what happens in between is the visit for about five days and the man returns home with his concubine. On the way, verse 15, on the way back home, they stopped in Gibeah to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? And he answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkey and our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves and servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply you whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took them into his house and fed their donkeys. And after they washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, 
Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to her but back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into twelve parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. So speak up. This concludes our reading. Take a deep breath. Her name is not known to us. This woman whose body was handled by every tribe of Israel somehow remains nameless, though she must have been the most talked about woman in the nation. Before the days of the printing press or the internet, he used her flesh and bone and made a tabloid out of her. Can you imagine anybody who wasn't talking about her? I heard the tribe of Gad got her feet and ankles. The tribe of Reuben received her left arm. Judah got the head. It sounds utterly disgusting and totally inappropriate for dinner table talk, but you know as well as I do that people are drawn to scandal like flies to a picnic. So everyone was talking about her, even if they didn't know her name either. It's hard to ignore the bloody stump of a leg that shows up on the village doorstep after all. She was known and examined and discussed by all, yet not really known at all. What we do know is that she is the concubine or the second wife of a Levite man. Levites, you may remember, are supposed to be special men set apart for God. She, on the other hand, is less than even the wife of a Levite. She is secondary, added later, whether for children or for pleasure or for both. He owns her. Thus, the beginning of her story is really quite remarkable because she leaves him. I mean, if you think divorce is hard now, try being a woman in ancient Israel. Leaving was not an option for women in those days, but somehow, we don't really know how, she makes it an option for herself. When the story begins, she's a very independent woman. Why she left depends on which ancient manuscript you read. The Hebrew and Syriac claim she played the harlot, while the Greek and Old Latin say that she became angry and left. Whatever the reason, she has to travel a great distance, alone probably, to return to the one place she might be safe after leaving her husband, 
her father's house. We don't know her exact reasons for leaving. Undoubtedly, they were good ones to take such a huge risk. But whatever her reasons, she is a woman who spoke her truth. We don't know if she said the words out loud to him, I'm leaving, or if she took off without warning because a silent departure was the only way a woman could escape. Either way, her actions spoke volumes. She stays with her father for four full months, but after all that time has passed, her husband decides he wants her back. We've been conditioned by Hollywood to think that a man who chases after a woman who leaves him is romantic. In reality, it is a violation of her truth. She said she didn't want to be with him anymore, and he ignored it. Another name for this is stalking. Now, some translations say he set out to convince her to come back. But a better translation of the Hebrew would be to say that he set out to speak to her heart. Scholar Phyllis Tribble notes the words to speak to her heart connote reassurance, comfort, loyalty, and love. There is at least a hint of romantic intention at the story's start. However, once he arrives at her father's house, the only conversation that occurs is between two men, eating and visiting with one another for five days, after which the Levite continues home with his concubine in tow. She does not appear to be consulted at all. I wonder about that. Like, if she had the nerve to leave him in the first place, did she really just go back to him without objection? Did she say no only to be ignored? Did she plead with her father to intervene only to be told it was her duty to return? And had this whole escapade happened before, I wonder? I mean, they say it takes the average woman seven times to leave her abuser, but that is in today's world where leaving is less difficult than it used to be. How many times did she try to communicate her truth only to have it shut down? From here, the story grows quickly from disturbing to grotesque. As they are relaxing and as guests in the old man's home, men of the city surround the house and pound on the door. Like the attempted gang rape of lots of visitors at Sodom and Gomorrah, these men demand access to the main guest, the man. Remember, rape is about power, not sex. So they decide to conquer that which will make them feel most powerful. They do not ask for any of the women or any of the male servants. They want the head of the party. They want to prove they can take whatever they want whenever they want it. But the old man pleads with them, no, please do not commit such an evil act given that this man has come to my house as a guest. Don't do this disgraceful thing, or in the RSV, this vile thing. Then he says, here is my daughter and his secondary wife. Let me send them out, and you can abuse them and do whatever you want to them. Actually, more literally, what he says is, quote, ravish them and do to them the good in your eyes. Now listen, I'm not going to suggest that the old man made this offer without pain in his heart. I'm not suggesting he wanted to do this or that it was easy for him. Hell, it was quite possibly gut-wrenching. He was a father for Pete's sake, and by all accounts thus far, a good and generous man. But notice the contrast in his speech. 
what the men want to do to his male guest, he calls it vile and evil. When he offers the two women, he invites the men to ravish them, saying, do what is good in your eyes. Evil, good, same act, different victims. This, my friends, is why men, and not just women, need to be liberated from patriarchy too. Because it was his sense of hospitality, not his perverseness, that made him willing to sacrifice his daughter. He thought he was choosing the lesser evil, a moral logic which only works if the wider worldview says women are lesser and accepts it as a fact. That means he was a good-hearted man caught in an evil system, making evil choices he thought were good ones. He thought he was protecting his guest and doing right by him. Let's pause on the old man here because, because far too many men I know are him. They are kind and generous and hospitable and resistant to evildoers. But if it comes down to a choice between protecting the person with more power, that is protecting his fellow man or defending the marginalized woman, he will choose the preservation of the brotherhood over the dignity of women nearly every time. Feminists have a term for this brother. He is called the benevolent patriarchy. It's the nice guys who think they care, and they do care until their own necks are on the line or their brother's neck is on the line, and suddenly the good old boys club matters more than justice, matters more than a woman or the women right in front of his face who are suffering. The old man tries to distract the mob of men, but he is unpersuasive. Next, the Levite, seeing that words and promises aren't working, does the only thing he can think of doing that might distract them from their target. He gives them a body, a human body. He shoves his concubine outside and slams the door behind her before anyone can gain a foothold inside. His plan works. The evil men leave him alone. He is safe. The same cannot be said for her. She is raped and abused all night long until daybreak when they finally release her. She returns to the old man's house, probably because she has nowhere else to go, and she collapses at the doorstep. When her husband gets up in the morning, because somehow he was able to sleep, the text says he opened the doors of the house and went outside to set out on his journey as if he was prepared to leave without her. Only there at the entrance of the house, she lies, interrupting his departure, her fingers clutching the doorframe, reaching for the door that separated her from safety. Get up, he says. Let's go. These are the first words, and the only words, he speaks to her in this story. Remember how he went to his father-in-law's house to speak to her heart? To convince her to come back? But this is all he ever says. Get up. Let's go. Lots of woo, that one. How did he go from wanting to win her back to being willing to hand her over to rapists and leave without her? 
Is it because he never truly valued her humanity to begin with? We know he did not value or respect her truth. When he tells her to get up, she makes no response. Without ceremony or any show of grief or remorse, he picks her up, takes her home, and chops up her body with a knife. He sends her pieces to the twelve tribes of Israel, after which the people say, Has such a thing ever happened? Consider, take counsel, and speak. Only the word consider is a translation of the Hebrew idiom direct to her heart, followed by to her. In other words, they witness her mutilated body and say, speak to her heart, take counsel and speak. And for a brief moment, I feel this glimmer of hope that the nation will do what the husband failed to do, that even though her life is gone, they will still find a way to speak to her heart. That my hopes are quickly dashed. If you keep reading, this is how Israel responds with war. They go to war against the Benjamites, the tribe from whom the rapist came, and tens of thousands of, sh- of soldiers are slain on both sides. It gets worse. Israel eventually wins out against the Benjamite tribe and they massacre the city. All the people, women, children, even animals. Only 600 men escape. It gets worse. After the war is over, the Israelites realize the poor Benjamites are left with no way to procreate because everyone in their tribe is dead except 600 men. And so to remedy this tragedy, they slaughter all the people in Jabesh-Gilead except for the virgins, and then they give the remaining 400 virgins to the lonely Benjamites. It gets worse. There were only 400 virgins in Jabesh-Gilead, and there were 600 Benjamite men. So if you do the math, they need 200 women more. So to remedy that, they abduct 200 women from Shiloh. In other words, the rape of one quickly escalates into the rape of 600, not to mention the slaughter of thousands more. And this is how the book of Judges ends. No redemption, no reconciliation, no resurrection. I believe there is nothing left to do with this story but to write the next chapter ourselves. There is nothing left to do but to speak to her heart ourselves, since no one else would. Do not run from this story because it is uncomfortable and agonizing. Pledge to see the arenas in our own time where this story still plays out. You may think that this story is far removed from our own, but it is not. When I think of her body chopped into pieces, I think of every victim of assault who has ever tried to tell the truth of what happened to her and the way we tear her story to shreds looking for holes. Truth-telling comes at a high cost, especially for women. When I think of the concubine's husband cutting her up like that as if she hadn't already been through enough, I think of the way survivors who come forward are quickly required to get rape kits for proof, which feels like being violated all over again. 
I think of how retelling the story can be as traumatizing as living it. And bonus, when you tell it, there's often an audience to drive home your feelings of, humi of humiliation and cast suspicion and doubt onto your reality. I think about the internet and how easy it is to chew someone up and spit them back out, how cyberbullying and trolling make the experience of telling your truth all the more excruciating because you can't talk about it without being abused. And if you stay quiet, they abuse you for that too. Why didn't you speak up sooner? When I think about her death, I think about how many victims never get to tell their own stories, either because they don't live to tell it or because the media or the abuser or the family mistells it for them. When I think about her failed attempt to leave her husband, I think about how hard it is to leave and stay away, even when you might be safer on your own. I think about how impossible it can be to really get away, to recover your own worth in a culture that refuses to acknowledge it. I think about how real her story is today in the 21st century, and I implore you, please do not walk away. I think about Ruth and Naomi and Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who are all contemporaries of this unnamed concubine wife. Women who lived during the period of judges and were seen and heard by God and by their communities. This tells me that horror and honor can coexist in the same place. We can live in a time where some women have more opportunity than women have ever had before, and some women are brutalized and terrorized on a daily basis. Most women are caught somewhere in between. Do not run away from seeing her reality. My friends, let us speak to her heart. Speak to her heart. Speak to her heart by listening. God has not called you to be a commentator on other people's trauma. Speak to her heart by seeing that she has one and knowing that it bleeds. It's not your story to cut up and dissect. Her story is not for your entertainment. She is not an intellectual exercise. She is not your debate topic or your dinner gossip. She is a person. You are not the expert on her life, on what she could or should have done or should or could do now. You will never be the expert. It is her story and her life. She is the expert. Speak to her heart. Speak to her heart by respecting and honoring her pain. Do not call her emotional or extreme or too late or irrational or hysterical or over the top. Tell her she is a sane person dealing with insane circumstances. Speak to her heart by abandoning benevolent patriarchy and the security it affords you. Speak to her heart by refusing to excuse violence. Do not say boys will be boys. Look, I get that our culture sends all sorts of wrong messages to boys about what it means to be a man and how to pursue a woman and not take no for an answer. But just because the culture discourages consent and promotes coercion, that doesn't make men not guilty. What it means is that patriarchy and rape culture are real and pervasive and invasive, and it's not just that it could or might affect you. It has affected you. Rape culture and patriarchal thinking are embedded in our collective psyche. Don't make excuses for that. Root it out. 
Speak to her heart by making a lifetime commitment, because it will take a lifetime, to confront the sexism that lives and breathes in you. The best bet your children and grandchildren have to overcoming the toxicity of sexism is to see the ongoing work of liberation practiced and modeled in you as you set yourself free one revelation, one choice, one repentance at a time. Speak to her heart by standing beside her. Do not leave the burden of telling the truth to her all by herself. Speak to her heart by walking out that front door with her, if that's what it takes. Stand between her and the violence. Look, (laughs) there are many ways of speaking to her heart. I can't tell you where to begin. I just implore you. Stop being silent. Amen.